can turn to Song of Songs, chapter 8. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 to 14. Uh, In a church Bible, that's page 685. And in the large print church Bibles, that's page 1058. Uh, We've been doing Song of Songs in the evening services, uh, but I ran out of evenings before the before the summer holidays begin, so we're going to finish off this morning. But actually it works out quite conveniently because this particular passage is a little bit different from the other ones. It stands well on its own, so hopefully you'll be okay having not been for some of the other ones. But one thing we have done as we've looked at the Song of Songs is Paula and I have done the readings together. Uh, So, uh, for obvious reasons, Paul has been the she, and I've been the he. Uh, But today, uh, uh, something a little bit different occurs in our passage, uh, and that is that um, the the woman's brothers uh, speak. Uh, And so, uh, Paula's brother in Christ, Josh, is going to be uh, a brother uh, today uh, in the reading. Uh, So he's going to be here reading verses 8 and 9. Paula will be there reading her parts as normal. Uh, But the passage begins with the friends in verse 5. So we're going to read verse 5 together as a congregation, or rather you are, uh, and then Paula will begin uh, her part uh, midway through verse 5. So if they get into position, uh, the words of verse 5, for those who haven't got the church Bibles, are on the screen. Those are the words that as a congregation you can read. And then once you've read, uh, we'll just carry on. So, let's read uh, Song of Songs, chapter 8, from verse 5. Who is this? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door... We will enclose her with panels of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. You who dwell in the gardens, with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Well, just as a a very brief overview of um, where we are in the book of, of, of Song of Songs... I thought I'd just give a, a brief description of, of what's happened so far. Uh, we haven't got here in this uh, book uh, a narrative story as such. It is a love song. It's poetry. 
So we, ca- we haven't got a story uh, in the same way as we've been looking at perhaps in uh, 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, this is very different, but at the same time, there is a progression through the book, through the song. And the song began uh, in chapter 1 and verse 2 with passionate desire, the desire of a woman to be with a man. She wanted to be with the man. She wanted him, uh, yes, sexually, but in other ways too, she wanted to be with him. She longed with a passionate desire to have this man. But then when the man comes for her in the next section of the book from chapter 2 verse 8, he knocks for, he comes for her, but she doesn't really want to go. She remains in her comfort zone, uh, in her house. He can't go through a wall to get her. He wants her to come out with him and she sends him away. He goes away, but then she realizes she's made this mistake. She realizes she wants him really, and so she goes and chases after him. And she finds him. And we come to chapter 3 uh, and uh, verse five, uh, verse uh, 4. rather. Uh, she finds him and she won't let him go. She holds on to him and she brings him to her mother's house. And we, uh, we, we see there a picture of her wanting to be with him in marriage. And then in the next section of the poem, uh, we have the wedding day and the wedding night. Uh, these amazing descriptions of each other. Uh, culminating in the consummation of the marriage in chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1. And what we see there is a description of the beauty and the wonder of sexual love that God has for those who are married. There are are visions here of the Garden of Eden. Uh, It's a very Edenic kind of description of what's going on. But after the wedding time we see that they, they, they don't remain in the Garden of Eden. Although a marriage might be made in heaven, it's not lived out in heaven. And we see in the next section of the book that there are, if you like, thorns in the garden. We have this uh, incident where he comes looking for her uh, and she doesn't want to, want to be with him again. She uh, rejects him and he goes away uh, and there is uh, problems within this relationship. And we talked at the time about the, the issue of uh, marriage problems and selfishness and difficulties and how we work through those things, and we see that in the song. But when we got to the end of that section, we saw that they are back together again at the end of cha- uh, beginning of chapter 6, but then he begins to have these amazing descriptions of her beauty. He reminds her of his love for her. He reminds her that although they, there has been sin in this relationship, he still loves her. He still wants her to be with him. And as we came to the end of last time, we saw that this man loves this woman, even though she has sinned against him, even though she has treated him badly, there is redeeming love that this man shows her. And throughout this song, this relationship pictures the love that Jesus Christ has for his people. The redeeming love that Christ has for us. We are sinners. We have treated him badly and yet he has died for us and he loves us and wants us to be with him. Well today as we come to the end of this poem we see that this section is a little bit different. Love throughout this song has been described Uh, more as a description in picture form of 
it, with the man and the woman. This is what love looks like. But here we see love described more in the abstract, a little bit like 1 Corinthians 13. Rather than showing what love is like through this man and a woman, what this passage does is show us what love is like through describing it. So you'll see there uh, in in chapter 8 verse uh, verse 6, love is as strong as death. It describes its jealousy. It describes how it burns. It describes... Uh, how it cannot be quenched, and so on and so forth. And so what we're going to do this morning really is to sit down and rather than look at this man and this woman, think about love and receive some lessons in love. That's what this uh, passage tries to do, teach us some lessons in love. The thing is, though, when we think about love, in English, uh, we only have one word for love, love. I can say that I love a barbecue in the summer, and I can say that I love my wife, but you would like to think I mean two quite different things. I do love a burger, but not in the same way as I love my wife. I've made no covenant promise to my burger. I haven't said to it, I'll eat you whether it rains or is sunny, and so on and so forth, but I've made a covenant promise to my wife. And in the Song of Songs, there are different words for love. In chapter 1 and verse 2, we saw, a, a, we saw the word love, but in the Hebrew, that word is a, a, a word that means a, a sexual kind of erotic love. Some translations even say, uh, uh, your caresses are more delightful than wine. It's not uh, the, the kind of love that is talked of in this passage in chapter 8. This kind of love in the Hebrew is ahava. It is more of a covenant love, the love that is uh, a promise that they will keep on loving. It's not a a sexual kind of love, it is a covenant love. In the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, it is agape love, love that is covenantal, love that is a promise, love that is like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that isn't just how we feel, it isn't erotic, it is a love that is faithful even through times that are difficult. It's the kind of love that we see in marriage. It's a self-giving kind of love, an active kind of love, the kind of love that is described in our reading in 1 Corinthians 13. And we can describe this kind of love as covenant love. When we're thinking of love this morning, in your minds you need to think covenant love. Covenant love is a love that is bound in promise. And we see this in the first two verses of our passage, verses 5 and 6. It says, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal on your heart, like a seal on your arm. I want you to notice, before we really begin, three uh, covenantal aspects in these verses that specifically relate to the covenant of marriage. But as we we think of that covenant this morning, we're not just going to think of marriage, but here we see a marriage described. First of all, she is leaning on her beloved. Leaning on her beloved. 
This is a, a picture of, of marriage. He, he, the man, is leading her from the wilderness back to society with her leaning on him. The friends are the society to whom she is being led back to, and leaning speaks of dependence and affection. You tend to lean on and depend on those you have a deep relationship with. So she's leaning on her beloved. It speaks of that covenantal relationship. Secondly, she speaks of family and progeny. So the apple tree was a tree thought of as erotic, and under it speaks of the place for lovemaking. But notice how the lovemaking here, unlike throughout the rest of the poem, is linked to her children. His mother conceived him and gave birth to him there under the apple tree. And the talk of the mother highlights the continuity of the family line. That's what's going on there. So it's speaking of family and the continuity of family line. And thirdly, she speaks of the permanence of the relationship. Notice in verse 6, she asks him to place her like a seal over his heart and his arm. Now a seal uh, was either worn around the neck or on a ring, and it was a symbol of ownership. It was personal to them. It was like their very name. Now, when something is sealed, we, we know of it as a letter. Uh, we don't do it so much today, uh, but in the olden days, uh, if a letter was sealed, it was stamped, and you would know who the letter was from. It was a seal of ownership, wasn't it, on a letter. Well, she wants him to have her like a seal on him. She wants to him to have her as a permanent and precious part of who he is. She wants to own him, and he wants her uh, to be permanently sealed on him so that he owns her. She wants him to be part of, uh, she wants to be part of his affections, that's the heart, and his actions, his arm. She wants to be part of who he is, the permanence. That's what the seal is. Uh, on a letter, a seal would be uh, ripped off, and you might throw it away, but this is more of a, a, a tattoo. She wants to be permanently placed on him to, dis- to show the permanence of their relationship. You can't rub it out, is what she's saying. We have a similar kind of symbol uh, with a wedding ring. The roundness uh, of the ring never ends. It des- it's, it's described, actually, in the wedding ceremony like this. I give you this ring as a sign of the promise we have made today and as a pledge of my love in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what we say as we, give and ex- as we exchange rings. Um, yes, I did get that from Kevin and Beth's wedding uh, ceremony last year. So we, that's what they promised each other as they gave rings to one another. It was a pledge of their love to show that this is a permanent relationship. And whilst marital love has been the theme of this book, covenantal love and the lessons we see here don't relate only to marriage. We have binding relationships that this kind of love is called for with others too. We have biblical covenant relationships with parents and siblings, with fellow church members, and with other Christians. But it's in married love and the covenant of marriage that God chooses to show 
the kind of love he has for his people. And it's his covenant love for us that we look to as the perfect example of all of these lessons at the end of this passage. So this morning we're going to see what is covenant love. And I want us to see as we look at this how much God loves us. And then for us to have that same love for one another. Well, verse 6 then shows her asking for him to be placed like a seal on, her, on, on his heart. But then she gives the reason why. It begins uh, uh, the next part of the verse, for or because. And we see the motivation as to why she wants this kind of covenant love. And we see three truths this morning. The first is this. Covenant love is powerful. Covenant love is powerful. We see in verses 6 and 7 three powers which love is more powerful than. These, uh, these powers are three of the most powerful forces that we can know. And the first is the power of death. The power of death. It says love is as strong as death. Death is something that's inescapable. Not through uh, want of trying. Many people don't want to talk about death. We live in a society where uh, people generally are healthy and life expectancy is higher than at almost any time in history. But death still comes, doesn't it? It's a power that cannot be avoided and it cannot be escaped from. Its jealousy is unyielding as the grave, we read. Jealousy uh, here is... Uh, a single-minded passion that won't stop at anything. The grave or death is an example of something that is unyielding. It will not give up. It will not stop. And jealous love is like this. It will not lose its grip. Now, often when we think of jealousy, uh, we think of it as a negative thing, don't we? Or a negative character trait. If I was to say I'm, I'm a jealous man, you would think, well, that's a negative thing. And, and sometimes it is. But there are two instances where jealousy is an appropriate reaction. One is divine jealousy. The jealousy that God has for his people. He does not want any other God to be worshipped other than him. And that's because he is the only true and living God. There is no other God who is true, no other God who is living, no other God who is worthy of our worship, and so God is right to be jealous for us to worship him alone. That's one type of jealous love which is appropriate. But the other type is for our spouses. That's not to say that we don't want our spouses to do anything other than be with us, but it is to say that there is a jealous kind of a love in that I don't want to share my wife with anybody else. That's not a bad thing, is it? You would think it was weird if I said, well, if anyone wants to be with my wife, come and ask and you can have her. No, I'm jealous because I love my wife. You see, hopefully uh, that makes sense. But that, but it, and it's a single-minded devotion. Because that jealous love isn't just that I don't want to share my wife. That jealous love also is I cannot love anyone else in the same way that I love my wife. It's a single-minded devotion 
and passion for one person. And it should be unyielding as the grave. It never stops. That's what's being talked about here. So love is as powerful and as strong as death. That's the first one. But the second love that is, uh, the second force that love is more powerful for is it's more powerful than the power of many waters, of many waters. Look at the end of verse 6 and beginning of verse 7. Love, it says, burns like a blazing fire, like a, a mighty flame. This burning is a strong power, okay? The, bur- the love that burns is a strong power. The fire, it's described as blazing. So blazing is intense, talks of its intensity. If, you, if, I, if we say uh, that, that that fire is blazing or roaring, you know what that means. It's not a match, okay? It's a, a fire that's, that's going, uh, and the fire is described here as mighty. Uh, in the NIV, it's described as mighty. In some translations, it describes it as uh, the flame of the Lord uh, because the name of God in the Hebrew is attached to this flame, but it's not really the full name of God, not the Lord God. So what this verse is really saying is somewhere between the NIV and the other translations, it is a God-like flame. It's godlike. It's so powerful. It is. It is godlike. So the flame of love is so powerful. It is intense. It is godlike. It is so powerful that the power of many waters and rivers cannot put it out. On the news recently, uh, you may have seen in the north of England there has been wildfires, and the fire departments have been going uh, great guns trying to get these fires out. They've. In fact, the fire is up north, and they've called people even from Birmingham to go up there, or they did, rather, to help put these fires out because the fire was blazing. And so they would pour billions of gallons of water over this fire. They would fly uh, planes over and drop the water uh, onto the fire to try and put it out. And eventually, they, got the, they get the fire out. But here, there are no, is no amount of water... Even if you put a river through the fire of love, nothing is going to put it out. The fire is so intense, it is so uh, godlike that many waters, even rivers, will not quench it or overpower it. Well, water in the Bible is often used uh, to describe chaos and judgment and difficult situations that you find yourself in. None of those difficulties are as powerful and as, as terrible so that they can overpower love or covenant love. So it's more powerful than many waters. Well, the final power that love overcomes is the power of money at the end of verse 7. All the money that you might own cannot buy it. Now, you can do a lot with money, can't you? Uh, you can be comfortable. You can get perhaps better health care if you have money and you might live longer. But you cannot go up to somebody and say, I'll give you a million pounds if you would love me. It's not, they're not gonna, they might accept the million pounds and pretend they love you, but you can't buy it. You can marry for money, yes, but you cannot buy the love that is talked of here through money. Money is a powerful force, but it can't buy love. So three threats to love, death, many waters, money. 
and none of them can overpower love. You may have noticed the similarities that these powers have to marriage vows. Here are the vows of a traditional wedding ceremony. Just listen to these words and see if you can see the similarities with what we've just read. I will be faithful to you from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, and cherish, till death us do part. We need to take these vows seriously if we are married. We are promising that our love will overpower money, richer and poorer, many waters of sickness and health, until death us do part. The love is as strong as death. And perhaps today there are folk here who are married, who are under strain because of finances or other difficulties, other waters that are trying to quench the love that you have. And it may be easier just to give up and to walk away. But let us remember the love that is the covenant love here is more powerful than any of those things. We vowed to each other we would covenant love one another till death us do part. Our love for others, though, only reflects the powerful love that is most clearly seen in Jesus. And this is uh, just most wonderful uh, if we can see this about Jesus. Let's look at those three, three threats And we'll look at them backwards, beginning with money. Jesus left the riches of heaven to be born in a lowly stable. He lived among the poor, having no place to lay his head, and he died naked on a cross. Why? Because his love is powerful. He came and he lived as he did so he could save us from our sins. His love is more powerful than many riches. The love of Christ for us is more powerful than many waters. Jesus was a suffering servant. The many waters rushed over him as he suffered the agony of the cross. The waters of God's judgment bore upon him as he paid for our sin. But his passionate burning love for his people was more powerful than the suffering he endured. And he went all the way till he cried out, it is finished. And the price for our sin was paid. His love for you and me, is more powerful than many, many waters. And here it says in Song of Songs that love is as strong as death because the love that we have for each other lasts till death. But the love of Christ is more powerful even than death itself because his love is the love that dies on the cross, but on the third day he rises from the dead so that we can have eternal life. One writer puts it like this. God's people incur the penalty of death because they sin. But God's love for them is as strong as their penalty and is able to overcome it. You see, the love of Jesus is stronger than death because he's risen from the dead. The love of Christ is so powerful that it can give us eternal life. Unless we are forgiven by him, unless he has died for our sin, there is eternal hell to pay. But because of his great love, there is heaven waiting for us. And even this side of heaven, 
The love of Christ is still with us all the time. When the many waters come, that love never ends. Listen to what uh, is written in Isaiah. We sung it earlier. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Sometimes we can feel unlovely, can't we? I don't wake up every day, look in the mirror and think, oh, God must really love me. No, we feel unlovely, that we don't deserve that love of God. But the cross and the grave stand, or the empty grave rather, stands as a sign that his love is stronger than death. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and 38 uh, put it most wonderfully, perhaps of all. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, how we are loved with the most powerful love that has ever been known. Covenant love is powerful and that love Christ has for you. So the first lesson, covenant love is powerful. Lesson number two is covenant love is precious. Uh, Verses 8 to 12 speak of the value of covenant love, how it is is precious. And it it does that by speaking of two uh, parables uh, that are told that show two ways that covenant love is precious, its purity and its exclusivity. So verses 8 to 10 show the the purity of covenant love. Uh, The first story is that of the brothers of the woman speaking of how they will help to maintain her purity. Uh, The brothers at the beginning of the song uh, appear in a negative light. And some see this uh, part here as uh, their negative control of the woman. They're trying to, to, to control her and not let her do what she wants to do. Uh, That may be true, but I see it quite in a different way, that in these days, there was a responsibility on the family to care for the needs of their siblings. And one of the responsibilities was to help the women remain pure for their wedding day. That's probably what's meant by the day she is spoken for in verse 8. It's the betrothal period where she is waiting for her wedding. And so they speak of the time when they have a little sister who is not yet ready for marriage. The breasts not having been grown speak of her immaturity at this stage. What are they going to do to help her remain pure until the day she's spoken for? Notice, by the way, that this is uh, what will they do for her, not to her. This is for her, for her good. Well, what they will do for her depends very much on what she does. Because verse 9 begins with an if. What they will do for her depends on if she is a wall or a door. If she's a wall, well, the wall speaks of an impenetrability. 
No one can walk through a wall because the way is blocked. So if she is a wall, it means that she is pure. They will help her, therefore, if she is pure, by building towers of silver on her. So they will reinforce the purity, and they will help her to maintain it, and they will make her even more attractive by building these towers of silver on her. That's if she's a wall. But if she's a door, on the other hand, well, a door opens and shuts. You can go through a door, and this speaks more of promiscuity. If she is a door, they will help her by enclosing her with panels of cedar. Cedar was a strong and beautiful wood. They're not going to punish her, but they're going to take measures to help her purity whilst not denigrating her beauty. However they can, these brothers will help her to be pure. Now in our day, uh, virginity and chastity and purity are all virtues that the world laugh at us for, and they're looked down on. But the Bible presents it as something that is valuable and something to treasure, something that is beautiful. Purity is so precious because God's love for us is a pure love. And covenant love is, as we've seen, a jealous love that saves itself for the object of its affections. Are you concerned about purity? Is it something that you value above the things of this world that they're telling you that love is? What about your own purity, first of all? We live in a culture where pornography is so prevalent that research has showed that young people today are growing up thinking that sex is what they see on pornographic websites. And that's actually having terrible impacts, especially on women. Because the porn industry dehumanizes and abuses people, using them for money. In fact, Jesus tells us to take our sexual purity so seriously that he tells us to do whatever it takes, however radical, to maintain it. On the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if your right hand causes you uh, to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than be thrown into hell. And those words are spoken in the context of not lusting after women. So we must be concerned with our own purity. But also, here we see we should be concerned with the purity of one another. Are you concerned for the purity of your brothers and sisters in Christ? We need to be holding each other accountable. We need to be thinking about, as we've talked before, about how we dress and act around each other so as not to tempt each other in these ways. And we need to say no to sexual sin with somebody else, not just because uh, we know it's wrong, but for their own benefit. Because when temptation comes, the enemy says, well, it's okay because you love each other. But true love says, no, it's not okay Because I love them, I'm going to show them the covenant love that God speaks of. And so I'm going to say no to sexual immorality, because true love encourages purity. Well, you may be wondering, well, what are the benefits to all this? Why should I? Why is purity so important? Well, part of the answer is found in her response in verse 10. She says, I am a wall. 
and my breasts are like towers. Thus, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. She asserts here her purity and her readiness for marriage. She is a wall, so I am a wall, I'm not a door. I've kept myself pure, and my breasts are like towers. Now, I'm no longer a young girl, I am ready for marriage. And because of this, it says, thus, because of this, she brings contentment or peace. There is peace and contentment in following God's ways. Whereas outside of God's plan, there is much hurt and pain. We live in a world that is sexually broken, that is discontented, and this is because God's ways are being abandoned. So here we're seeing that purity actually is what brings true contentment to yourself, but also to others. Let us be ones who bring contentment through the purity of our lives. But what about when we failed in this area? Does this mean that our marriages can never be content? Well, no, that's not what this is saying. When we have sinned, we bring our sin to God, we confess our sin to one another, and we seek forgiveness. And then we live in the forgiveness that we've looked at before in this song, and we seek purity from now on. There will be consequences to sin, yes. Sometimes those are very serious. But God is a God who enables us to live and thrive as Christians in marriage, even when sin has happened. However, all of us have fallen in this area to one degree or another. And it is only the pure love of Jesus, the love that purifies us from all sin, that can truly bring contentment and peace for all eternity. The preciousness of covenant love is shown through purity. But the second story in verses 11 and 12 show that the preciousness is also shown through exclusivity. That's the second uh, story we see in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11, this, uh, this next parable or story. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. Well, Baal Haman means literally Lord of Abundance. And it speaks of the wealth and purity of which King Solomon had in abundance, both in terms of money and of women. And he lets his vineyard out to tenants, and so his vineyard is not his alone. What seems to be going on uh, is something that would have happened in those days. The vineyard uh, was let out for a thousand shekels of silver. So Solomon was given a thousand shekels, and then whatever the, the tenants make, they get to keep themselves. Solomon gets a thousand, the tenants keep the rest. And it seems to be at the end of verse 12 that the tenants manage to make 200 shekels for themselves. So that's what the, the kind of the, the, the parable uh, means. But she's saying that her vineyard is hers to give. She's not letting it out for profit to share with lots of tenants. She is giving it. And in the context of the song, we know she is giving it to one man. This is a a story with a meaning, a, a parable. The vineyard represents covenant love. Solomon shared his love with many others. 
The thousand shekels may even refer to 1 Kings chapter 11, where he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 or 300 equals 1,000. His love was bought, sometimes by political alliances, sometimes by lust, but love became for Solomon a commodity that was bought and sold. But her love is hers to give, not to be shared, to give exclusively to one man. It's devoted, it's precious, it's covenant love. Well, there's a, we, we've been at Holiday Club this week singing um, uh, Bee Gees tunes, having Bible verses attached to them. Uh, and there is a Bee Gees song, uh, How Deep Is Your Love, that some of you may know. But we could change the words to that song for this and say, how cheap is your love? When we think of, of buying sex, we might think of prostitution, but we sell our love for other things than money, don't we? We can sell our love for an easy life. Relationships can be hard. It can be so much easier not to make an effort. And covenant love is sold for an easy life. We can sell our love for the cheap thrills of online sex or easy sex with someone from an internet app, and covenant love is just sold away. Other idols can buy our covenant love when we've become devoted to those things or, or somebody else that's not the person or people that we should be loving. How cheap is your love? What do you sell it for? But covenant love, the covenant love of God was not cheap. It cost him everything, didn't it? His very life on the cross was what it cost him. And this woman gave her vineyard to one man. Jesus Christ gave his life for his people. For the exclusive benefit of you and me. How precious is the love of Christ for us? So covenant love is powerful Covenant love is precious. And finally, covenant love is perpetual. Perpetual uh, means never-ending or continuing. And the last two verses uh, of the song can seem a bit strange at first. At least I thought it was strange because I was kind of expecting, maybe hoping for, and they lived happily ever after. But verse 13 finds her in the garden with her friends. She is dwelling, which indicates a place of permanence, or at least regular uh, visitation. She's with her friends, and he wants to hear her voice. He's missing her, and so he calls for her. And in verse 14, she responds with another invitation to intimacy. She asks asks him to come away to the spice-laden mountains, which we've seen before in this poem is linked to Um, uh, which, as we've seen before, is linked to the joyful uh, gate of the gazelle and the stag as they bound around uh, enjoying their intimacy with her. It's a familiar scene that we've seen before. Be like a gazelle, be like a stag on the spice-laden mountains, which usually refers to her, uh, her body. Well, in the past, he has called her and wants to hear her voice, and she's not always responded well, but here, she does respond. The point seems to be going on here is, as we read it at least, is here we go again. Here we go again. He's calling her. She's responding. Here we go again. 
But that's the big lesson here in covenant love. Covenant love is not a one-off event or a temporary feeling. Covenant love is faithful and it keeps on going. And I was kind of half expecting when I was first reading this through and they lived happily ever after. But actually, this is something better. There isn't an end here. There is rather a promise of more to come, more intimacy. The the perpetuity of covenant love is both its difficulty and its joy. Sometimes uh, its perpetuity is hard because it's hard at times to keep loving when someone is so difficult to live with. And that describes all of us, doesn't it? It can be easy to give up on our marriages. It can, be, it can be easy to give up on God's people and to walk away because the church, folks, we have to, to, to grasp are not easy to live with. And I'm not saying, as your pastor, I find you so hard to live with. I'm saying I'm part of that too. It can be easy to walk away from church. It can be easy to walk away from family and friendships and relationships. But covenant love keeps on going. It says, here we go again. But it's also, it's great joy, isn't it? What joy there is in knowing that we are loved even when we feel unlovely. What joy there can be in our marriages as we grow together in intimacy, where the love blossoms and grows as the years go by. How much joy I've had as a minister, sometimes uh, going and visiting uh, older people who are still deeply in love. It's the most beautiful and wonderful thing to see. Now, when I was a child, I thought, that's going to be gross. But now, I think it's wonderful. It is. It's lovely when people have been married for 60, 70 years, and they are besotted with each other. That's love, isn't it? That's wonderful. That's why I pray that we have that in our marriage as we grow old together, Lord willing. But isn't that how God loves us? His love is also not a one-off event. His love, rather, is a love that is an eternal love that keeps on loving in perpetuity no matter what. And in a culture where love can seem so transient, what a better story we have in the Bible of a God whose love will never end and a people whose love for him will only ever keep growing. It makes me think uh, of the end of the the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you may know uh, those stories. Uh, Here is what uh, C.S. Lewis writes at the very end of his Chronicles. And this uh, this ending kind of pictures uh, what heaven is going to be like for us. And it's speaking of how uh, when Aslan uh, stops speaking and they enter the end. It says, as he spoke, uh, this is Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. And get this, in which every chapter is better 
than the one before. That's what heaven's going to be like. Every chapter, better than the one before. Covenant love is perpetual. You know, we think of heaven and we think when we get there, it's all going to be perfect, and it will be. But in some way that I can't understand, it's just going to get better and better. It's never going to end. Covenant love with our Savior forever. As we've seen uh, through uh, the song of songs, we've seen the greatest song of all, the description of an invitation to intimacy that this man and this woman have, but really it pictures the invitation that you have from God to this everlasting love that will never end. And it is such a better story than anything you'll see in this world. There are so many offers and invitations that are going out there for you to love. So many things that are transient and so many things that are are just so trashy. And here in the Bible, God says, come. Come to this love that lasts forever. How can we say no to God and yes to something which doesn't even compare to this? Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that's what we see at the end of this song. The Song of Solomon. Solomon's name uh, speaks of peace. He's with the Shulamite. Another way of saying Solomon as a woman. And uh, her name means peace too. They're at peace together. And at the end of this song, we see a couple saying, here we go again. And when we get to heaven, every day we'll be saying, here we go again. Yes, Lord. And so at the end of this song, we should be looking forward uh, to heaven, yes. But even now, looking forward to living for Jesus and saying, here we go again. And as we do so, we say, come, Lord Jesus. We're going to love him forever. And it's going to be great. Well, I kind of left my notes a little bit there. Because it's exciting, isn't it? This love that God has for his people. And we're going to respond uh, now in song. Uh, And the first, we're going to sing two songs. The first is an old hymn which speaks of the rest or the peace we have only in Christ as we hear his voice. At the end of the song, uh, he says to her, let me hear your voice. And And our final song says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And we think of the the rest and the love we have as we hear his voice. And then after we've sung that, we're going to sing of the resurrection of Jesus. And the final verse of that song speaks of the love that's stronger than death. It says, uh, we are raised with him. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we shall reign with him for he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. So let's stand and let's sing in worship of the God whose covenant love is ours to have. So let's praise him.